welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Welcome to episode 16 of The Common Bridge. We have a real treat for you uh, today, and this might be in multiple parts. This is a conversation that Rich had with Chinese hedge fund manager Aaron Boski a couple of days ago, and uh, Boski's an interesting guy. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a graduate of Michigan State University's Eli Broad College of Business, and he completed his postgraduate studies at Beijing Foreign Affairs College and Oakland University. In 2004, he founded uh, the Marco Polo Investments and Marco Polo Pure Asset Management. And that group became the world's first dedicated Shanghai A-Share hedge fund management team offered to foreigners. And today it has one of the longest running track records focused on the Shanghai market. Uh, Boski speaks English and he speaks Mandarin Chinese, so probably be speaking English for our, po <laughs> our podcast. Um, and he's been dedicated to the Chinese markets for the last uh, two decades or about 19 years. And you've probably seen him on Bloomberg Television. Uh, he presents to numerous industry conferences, and he's been the subject of um, a lot. And he's really actually been interviewed for a lot of publications on the subject of the Chinese Shanghai A-share uh, market around the world. Um, this is a great conversation, though. But bear with us, because uh, Rich is actually talking to him uh, from Hong Kong, so bear with any of the um, sound quality issues you have. But... Anyway, this is great. Rich starts out by asking him how this all got started. How'd you get to China? I think it was Brazil you were looking at, and then you selected China. Um, I, you know what? For I think for in terms of my own background, is it you know my story coming out to China it was it was an exciting story about immigration. Um, you know, I looked at uh, my grandparents and great grandparents, and there were always these like rumored stories of romantic idealistic crossing of the ocean and ellis island and uh you know starting rags to riches type of a you know original american dream type of uh of a vibe and um it was off of that off of that emotion that i decided that i just wanted to try it myself somewhere else because the moment that I started to sort of put that that outfit on that that dream of going to a foreign place like my forefathers did when they came to the U.S. and learning a different language and learning the geography and the culture and and starting your own way, whatever that was going to be, I really didn't know. <clears throat> what I was going to get into when I went out and I didn't know where I was going to go. The original decision was just to leave the U S not because I didn't love it, but because I wanted something exciting and motivating. You know, when you're in your, when you're getting out of university and you're, you hit that, you hit that period where it's, um, where you're, you know, you're not getting the respect 
that people who are established, you know, in their mid thirties in, in corporate America or whatever, you know, trade that they're, they're, they're applying in the world. Um, it's hard when you're in your twenties to find your way and get, get excited. And, uh, the moment that I started to envision myself in a foreign place, speaking a different language, the challenge of it all, that's when I knew, I knew the moment that that occurred to me that I could replicate what our forefathers did when they came to the U S and China of all the places that I had looked at just, it offered everything. I mean, it had the, you know, it had tremendous growth and upside and it was very exotic and unique and different. Um, I also was very attracted by the culture in general. Um, I find the Chinese and, and Asian nations and cultures, generally speaking, to be very industrious, um, pragmatic, um, and business focused, which is how I was raised and, and the way my mind works. So it was just a perfect fit at the perfect time. So, you know, it's been now 17 years. I did three years in Mandarin and, and, um, three years in, and just general Chinese anthropology and history. Um, and when I arrived in China, I was already speaking, um, you know, a moderate amount of Mandarin and I already had a, a pretty, you know, pretty good base of education. You know, when I touched down, I had already prepared for about two years, three years. And um, it was from the moment I landed, you know, the, one of the most exciting journeys or life, lives anyone could lead. And, and I am a big fan of this topic that we're going to be talking about, uh, which is effectively globalization. And that's, to me, what the whole thing is about. You know, I think people in general should be doing business around the world. It, you know, by, by sharing cultures and by, um, um, you know, interchanging ideas and information and movement of people, it's, um, highly beneficial for everybody. And I'm very pro trade as a general stance and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be talking about this. We're very excited to have you on. And with the Common Bridge, uh, people want to understand about policy. They want to understand how does this work. Um, so we're going to get a little bit into in-depth with that. And I believe you're a person that is indeed on the front lines of what's happening with U.S. trade policy with the second largest economy in the world, um, and China. And do you mind taking a minute or two just to explain what you do with Marco Polo and sure. particularly how you diligence companies, the way that you <laughs> get inside, you look at the people, you look at the integrity of their books, their market, their competitors, um, how they run their supply lines. Um, uh, it is really uh, I believe part of what gives you such credibility to talk about how this international economy runs. 
So if you don't mind, yeah. a, a little bit about what you do at Marco Polo, yeah. and particularly how you got this viewpoint into the real economy. Yeah. So, well, when I when I had originally got going in China, the opportunity of the Shanghai stock market, which houses uh, almost 4,000 um, companies, most of which are liquid, um, unlike, say, the Indian stock market, where only maybe 50, 50 names are really traded. The Shanghai stock market, um, which is where we trade uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen, it's sort of like NASDAQ in New York. We have two major forces. Um, but uh, I, we operate a fund for the last 15 years. We were the first fund and fund management company ever launched that offered access by a specialized fund to enter for foreign, foreign capital and foreign investors in the U.S. and Europe to participate in the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock market. At that time when we launched, it was a, a Chinese woman who's been my partner now for 15 plus years. And um, we were part of a test program. It was not even really, uh, I would call it a pilot test of foreign capital being traded. I mean, when we took our, our capital in and ra we raised most of our capital from American investors. And when we, you know, it was small. I mean, you know, we're talking five, 10 million in our, you know, in year one. And we didn't even know if we were gonna be able to get our money out. <laughs> That's how risky it was. Um, but it was so exciting and our passion, Chris and myself, for the opportunity and ultimately the learning experience that the next 15 years would bring, which hopefully I can share some of, you know, the things that I've learned along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, so what we did is we deploy and manage actively, just like you would in the U.S. stock market, um, the Shanghai stock market. You know, we have trade volumes in our market in US dollar terms on a daily basis, sometimes which are triple the New York Stock Exchange. You might want to let that soak in for a second. Well, that is that is yeah. a very impressive number and you <laughs> touched on some of the risks in the Chinese market in that it was fairly opaque. It, you, you couldn't really understand how good company A was versus company B. But I think that's a code that you cracked through some very hard work. Uh, yeah, well, um, on the micro side, um, really was, you know, I have to credit my partner because she's been driving for 15 years the process. Um, her background was as an auditor at PricewaterhouseCoopers for five or six years prior. And she had a specialization in, in Chinese companies and and was trained from birth, I would say, almost to interface um, in the way that she does today, which is she's very uh, skeptical and um, she's very aware of <clears throat> of accounting practices. She's a CPA. She was educated in Australia, trained at Price Waterhouse, and she right away when i saw the opportunity of the shanghai 
opening this test program and allowing foreigners into the market for the first time, I, I wanted that opportunity, but I knew that I needed someone who had, you know, a decade or so of auditing experience on Chinese companies. And it's funny that you brought that up right away because that was the biggest fear that I had, um, knowing that I was going to be um, entrusted from my peers in the U.S., investors and, and friends and family originally, that were going to say, hey, do you know what you're putting your money into? I mean, what are these companies really, you know, how much fraud is going on? How much, you know, and, and what we learned over the 15 years was that um, public companies in the Shanghai market and in China, they're a lot cleaner than you would suspect. Um, the public markets, uh, you know, and I can't speak about what goes on with private companies, but the transparency we get, it's quarterly reporting, and it, it was basically the only market in Asia that was quarterly reporting when, when we launched back around 2003. Um, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, Taiwan, none of those were quarterly reporting. We were getting quarterly reporting pursuant to IFRS standards. Um, everything was being provided. Now, underneath those numbers, you know, how, how much could you trust? Um, I can say that in 15 years, we've very rarely seen a case of a company that was found to be fraudulent. We really want to work uh, in uh, fundamentals and, you know, starting with, you know, why should Americans care about U.S.-China trade? And I know I do have some listeners in Europe and uh, to the extent it affects them. And, you know, we've been trading with China for hundreds of years. And, you know, it's not something new. And so what problems have we been trying to solve with better trade deals? You know, if you read the American press, you know, we've had job offshoring and currency manipulation charges and uh, the theft of uh, intellectual property, um, threats to U.S. core industries, uh, product dumping, predatory pricing, um, pursuit of minerals around the world in unfair ways. Um, you know, so if you wouldn't mind spending a little time on, you know, what's the, the backdrop? What are we trying to solve? And, and maybe just in recent history, what have been some of the past policy approaches that have been taken with China, um, you know, well, predating 2017? I would say to really come at that, if you really want to look at what's going on today in this trade conflict, the best way to start um, without going back hundreds of years, and, and that's an exciting story in itself, which I'm uh, well-versed in, but the in recent history, I think that it really all started um, in, in the Kissinger-Nixon visits in China, and that set the tone for everything that transpired afterwards. So at that time, um, we were very concerned that China and Russia were, you know, expanding their political 
ideology across the world and that we would effectively be overrun by that. And so that was, you know, a big motivation for us. We saw that there was a rift between China and Russia and the rift. One of the main reasons that there was a rift between the two communist parties at that time was that communism failed in China. There are about 20 million people died of starvation in the Great Leap Forward, and they learned the hard way that that system doesn't work. And Deng Xiaoping, when he he's probably the most notable and uh, important political figure in in my memory of China, and um, you know he he has one very famous quote, which is. It doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it gets the mouse, which is China realized it doesn't matter if you want to call this communism, capitalism. We just want to eat. We want to survive and succeed. And he basically said, let's drop the dogma and let's just figure out how we can make it. And that began that concept and that emotion was brokered between the U.S. and China um, under Nixon and Kissinger, and it set up a relationship between us and China in an effort to bring them to our way of life and not to the Russian way of life. And that was, <clears throat> that was the basis of the friendship and the partnership that began. And the way that it went forward from there um, throughout Reagan, Bush, Clinton, um, all the way until Trump. The general tone was, we're going to help you guys. We're going to um, educate you on how to do it. We're going to show you how to you know, build the financing system, your banking system. Um, we were the partners that showed them the way, and we also financed them. So, <clears throat> you know, we were backing them to come to our way of life. And we felt that by bringing China online into a capitalistic structure um, would be beneficial across the board, um, that they would become a country that speaks our language um, from a business perspective and more and more a political perspective culturally. And if you look at what's happened, if you if you looked at China then and you look at China now, we succeeded. I mean, it's, you know, you go around China now. I mean, even in the, you know, up almost 20 years that I've been, you know, moving around, the 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 shift towards our way as much as they could they're still a very different culture um and you know we could discuss that for a long time i'm sure but um the interface you know the way that they do business um private companies um just the the whole system is a copy in, in a lot of ways of our system. And when I say copy, which is a very important word in this trade dispute, um, I want to be clear that we were incentivizing them and encouraging them to copy 
our way. And but, that, but were we also incentivizing them to copy our software and just take it? Well, no, I mean, that's this psychology is what led up to transgressions, which did occur in recent times. Um, but the the idea was was we'll turn our head and cough and look the other way while they um, take and steal, you could say, or copy various aspects of our way of life. It might be um, how we how we you know how we do an assembly line, how we you know things that you can't even patent. Just we we were very happy to see them coming our way and not going the way of communist Russia at that time. And so for you know two decades, three decades, we knew that they were taking stuff and not paying for it. You know, in the US, you can't just take a guy's hard work, whatever it might be, his toothpaste formula or whatever, you know, you can't just take those things. You have to pay, you know, uh, you know, licensing and patents and and whatever else uh, to compensate people. Um, and that's one of the big advantages of the entire American system was the protection of individuals, the protection of ideas and businesses. The problem ultimately became was that they started to blur the line. Everyone was blurring the line. We, there was no line originally. There was just this, we're going to turn our head and you guys copy us and become American and it's all going to be good because you won't be Russian. And uh, that was fine until it just started to just be too much. I mean, if you you look at things before Trump did what he did, um, and I think that this was going long before Trump, the U.S. Senate has been pounding their fists about these issues for about five or 10 years prior to Trump. So this is the, this whole thing isn't new. Um, and the, the main issue here is that American innovation is our advantage. Um, and we can't allow countries, no matter who they are, or how much we want to be friends with them or we want them to not be our enemy, we can't we can't give away what we do best and we had to stand up for ourselves at some point and say hey look we helped you guys out we got you up and running but that's you know now that you're up and running you've got to play by the rules and i think that this whole dispute and i'm not politically charged either way i'm definitely more on the commercial side of things um but i think that the time was right to draw the line now and say, hey, you know, we gave you, we basically gave them a free ride just so that they could get going. And now they're going. So why should they get free windows when I have to pay for it? You know, it's not fair. Um, so, and it's not fair to Bill Gates or whoever. So, you know, at the, uh, at the end of the day, the time was right for a renegotiation of our relationship. It had to happen, and I would say that the only core issue, in truth, is the is the theft of technologies and patents and and ideas and and not paying for them. That is the core main transgression that has occurred. 
okay, we're going to pause this uh, interview right here and pick it up next week um, when Mr. Boski goes on a little further about intellectual property rights. And, um, but moreover, how uh, phase one of the current trade deal came about and what its impact will be going forward. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for joining us. And, um, and we'll see you next week on a continuation of part two with Richard Helpy's uh, podcast interview with Chinese hedge fund manager, Aaron Boski. See you next time. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.